0: Section 14. The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Sinner. Written by himself, by James Hogg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. As I thus wended my way, I beheld a young man of a mysterious appearance coming towards me. I tried to shun him, being bent on my own contemplations. But he cast himself in my way, so that I could not well avoid him. And more than that, I felt a sort of invisible power that drew me towards him, something like the force of enchantment, which I could not resist. As we approached each other, our eyes met, and I can never describe the strange sensations that thrilled through my whole frame at that impressive moment. A moment to me fraught with the most tremendous consequences. The beginning of a series of adventures which has puzzled myself, and will puzzle the world when I am no more in it that time will now soon arrive sooner than any one can devise who knows not the tumult of my thoughts and the labour of my spirit and when it hath come and passed over when my flesh and my bones are decayed and my soul has passed to its everlasting home then shall the sons of men ponder on the events of my life wonder and tremble and tremble and wonder how such things should be. That strange youth and I approached each other in silence, and slowly, with our eyes fixed on each other's eyes. We approached till not more than a yard intervened between us, and then stood still and gazed, measuring each other from head to foot. What was my astonishment on perceiving that he was the same being as myself? The clothes were the same to the smallest item. The form was the same, the apparent age, the color of the hair, the eyes, and, as far as recollection can serve me from viewing my own features in a glass, the features, too, were the very same. I conceived at first that I saw a vision, and that my guardian angel had appeared to me at this important era of my life. But this singular being read my thoughts and my looks, anticipating the very words that I was going to utter. "'You think I am your brother,' said he, or that I am your second self. I am indeed your brother, not according to the flesh, but in my belief of the same truths, and my assurance in the same mode of redemption, than which I hold nothing so great or so glorious on earth. Then you are an associate well adapted to my present state, said I. For this time is a time of great rejoicing in spirit to me. I am on my way to return thanks to the Most High for my redemption from the bonds of sin and misery. If you will join with me heart and hand in youthful thanksgiving, then shall we two go and worship together. But if not, go your way, and I shall go mine. Ah, you little know with how much pleasure I will accompany you. AND JOIN WITH YOU IN YOUR ELEVATED DEVOTIONS," SAID HE FERVENTLY. YOUR STATE IS A STATE TO BE ENVIED INDEED, BUT I HAVE BEEN ADVISED OF IT, AND AM COME TO BE A HUMBLE DISCIPLE OF YOURS, TO BE INITIATED INTO THE TRUE WAY OF SALVATION BY CONVERSING WITH YOU, AND PERHAPS OF BEING ASSISTED BY YOUR PRAYERS. My spiritual pride being greatly elevated by this address, I began to assume the preceptor and question this extraordinary youth with regard to his religious principles, telling him plainly, if he was one who expected acceptance with God at all, on account of good works, that I would hold no communion with him. He renounced these at once with the greatest vehemence, and declared his acquiescence in my faith. I asked if he believed in the eternal and irrevocable decrees of God regarding the salvation and condemnation of all mankind. He answered that he did so. Eh, What would signify all things else that he believed, if he did not believe in that? We then went on to commune about all our points of belief, and in everything that I suggested he acquiesced, and as I thought that day, often carried them to extremes, so that I had a secret dread he was advancing blasphemies. He had such a way with him, and paid such a deference to all my opinions, that I was quite captivated, and at the same time, I stood in a sort of awe of him, which I could not account for, and several times was seized with an involuntary inclination to escape from his presence by making a sudden retreat. But he seemed constantly to anticipate my thoughts, and was sure to divert my purpose by some turn in the conversation that particularly interested me. He took care to dwell much on the theme of the impossibility of those ever falling away who were once accepted and received into covenant with God, for he seemed to know that in that confidence and that trust my whole hopes were centered. We moved about from one place to another until the day was wholly spent. My mind had all the while been kept in a state of agitation resembling the motion of a whirlpool. And when we came to separate, I then discovered that the purpose for which I had sought the fields had been neglected, and that I had been diverted from the worship of God by attending to the quibbles and dogmas of this singular and unaccountable being, who seemed to have more knowledge and information than all the persons I had ever known put together. We parted with expressions of mutual regret, and when I left him I felt a deliverance, but at the same time a certain consciousness that I was not thus to get free of him, but that he was like to be an acquaintance that was to stick to me for good or for evil. I was astonished at his acuteness and knowledge about everything. But as for his likeness to me, that was quite unaccountable. He was the same person in every respect, but yet he was not always so. For I observed several times, when we were speaking of certain divines and their tenants, that his face assumed something of the appearance of theirs. And it struck me that, by setting his features to the mold of other people's, he entered at once into their conceptions and feelings. I had been greatly flattered and greatly interested by his conversation. Whether I had been the better for it or the worse, I could not tell. I had been diverted from returning thanks to my gracious Maker for his great kindness to me, and came home as I went away, but not with the same buoyancy and lightness of heart. Well may I remember the day in which I was first received into the number and made an heir to all the privileges of the children of God, and on which I first met this mysterious associate, who from that day forth contrived to wind himself into all my affairs, both spiritual and temporal, to this day on which I am writing the account of it. It was on the twenty-fifth day of March, 1704, when I had just entered the eighteenth year of my age. Whether it behooves me to bless God for the events of that day, or to deplore them, has been hid from my discernment. Though I have inquired into it with fear and trembling, and I have now lost all hopes of ever discovering the true import of these events until that day when my accounts are to make up and reckon for in another world. When I came home, I went straight into the parlor where my mother was sitting by herself. She started to her feet and uttered a smothered scream. "'What ails you, Robert?' cried she. "'My dear son, what is the matter with you?' "'Do you see anything the matter with me?' said I. "'It appears that the ailment is with yourself, "'and either in your crazed head or your dim eyes, "'for there is nothing the matter with me.' "'Ah, Robert, you are ill!' cried she. "'You are very ill, my dear boy. "'You are quite changed.' Your very voice and manner are changed. Ah, Jane, haste you up to the study and tell Mr. Ringham to come here on the instant and speak to Robert. I beseech you, woman, to restrain yourself, said I. If you suffer your frenzy to run away with your judgment in this manner, I will leave the house. What do you mean? I tell you, there is nothing ails me. I never was better. She screamed, and ran between me and the door, to bar my retreat. In the meantime, my reverend father entered, and I have not forgot how he gazed through his glasses, first at my mother, and then at me. I imagined that his eyes burnt like candles, and was afraid of him, which I supposed made my looks more unstable than they would otherwise have been what is all this for said he mistress robert what is the matter here oh sir our boy cried my mother our dear boy mr ringham look at him and speak to him he is either dying or translated sir he looked at me with a countenance of great alarm mumbling some sentences to himself and then taking me by the arm as if to feel my pulse he said with a faltering voice. S- something has indeed befallen you, either in body or mind, boy, for you are transformed since the morning, that I could not have known you for the same person. Have you met with any accident? No. Have you seen anything out of the ordinary course of nature? No. Then, Satan, I fear, has been busy with you, tempting you in no ordinary degree at this momentous crisis of your life." My mind turned on my associate for the day, and the idea that he might be an agent of the devil had such an effect on me that I could make no answer. "'I see how it is,' said he. "'You are troubled in spirit and I have no doubt that the enemy of our salvation has been busy with you. Tell me this, has he overcome you, or has he not? He has not, my dear father, said I. In the strength of the Lord, I hope I have withstood him. But indeed, if he has been busy with me, I knew it not. I have been conversant this day with one stranger only, whom I took rather for an angel of light. It is one of the devil's most profound wiles to appear like one, said my mother. Woman, hold thy peace, said my reverend father. Thou pretendest to teach what thou knowest not. Tell me this, boy. Did this stranger, with whom you met, adhere to the religious principles in which I have educated you? Yes. To every one of them in their fullest latitude, said I. Then he was no agent of the wicked one with whom you held converse, said he. For that is the doctrine that was made to overturn the principalities of powers, the might and dominion of the kingdom of darkness. Let us pray. After spending about a quarter of an hour in solemn and sublime thanksgiving, this saintly man and minister of Christ Jesus gave out that the day following should be kept by the family as a day of solemn thanksgiving, and spent in prayer and praise, on account of the calling and election of one of its members, or rather for the election of that individual being revealed on earth, as well as confirmed in heaven. The next day was with me a day of holy exaltation, It was begun by my reverend father laying his hands upon my head and blessing me, and then dedicating me to the Lord in the most awful and impressive manner. It was in no common way that he exercised this profound rite, for it was done with all the zeal and enthusiasm of a devotee to the true cause and a champion on the side he had espoused. He used these remarkable words, which I have still treasured up in my heart. I give him unto thee only, to thee wholly, and to thee for ever. I dedicate him unto thee, soul, body, and spirit. Not as the wicked of this world, or the hirelings of a church profanely called by thy name do I dedicate this thy servant to thee. Not in words and form learned by rout, and dictated by the limbs of Antichrist, but, Lord, I give him into thy hand, as a captain putteth a sword into the hand of his sovereign, wherewith to lay waste his enemies. May he be a two-edged weapon in thy hand, and a spear coming out of thy mouth to destroy and overcome and pass over. And may the enemies of thy church fall down before him and be as dung to fat the land. From the moment I conceived it decreed, not that I should be a minister of the gospel, but a champion of it, to cut off the enemies of the Lord from the face of the earth. And I rejoiced in the commission finding it more congenial to my nature to be cutting sinners off with the sword than to be haranguing them from the pulpit, striving to produce an effect which God, by his act of absolute predestination, had forever rendered impracticable. The more I pondered on these things, the more I saw of the folly and inconsistency of ministers in spending their lives striving and remonstrating with sinners in order to induce them to do that which they had it not in their power to do. Seeing that God had from all eternity decided the fate of every individual that was to be born of woman, how vain was it in man to endeavor to save those whom their Maker had, by an unchangeable decree, doomed to destruction. I could not disbelieve the doctrine which the best of men had taught me, and towards which he made the whole of the Scriptures to bear, and yet it made the economy of the Christian world appear to me as an absolute contradiction. How much more wise would it be, thought I, to begin and cut sinners off with the sword! For till that is effected, The saints can never inherit the earth in peace. Should I be honored as an instrument to begin this great work of purification, I should rejoice in it. But then, where had I the means, or under what direction was I to begin? There was one thing clear. I was now the Lord's and it behooved me to bestir myself in his service. Oh, that I had an host at my command! Then would I be as a devouring fire among the workers of iniquity. Full of these great ideas, I hurried through the city and sought again the private path through the field and wood of Finiston, in which my reverend preceptor had the privilege of walking for study and to which he had a key that was always at my command. Near one of these stiles, I perceived a young man sitting in a devout posture, reading a Bible. He rose, lifted his hat, and made an obeisance to me, which I returned and walked on. I had not well crossed the stile till it struck me I knew the face of the youth and that he was some intimate acquaintance to whom I ought to have spoken. I walked on, and returned, and walked on again, trying to recollect who he was, but for my life I could not. There was, however, a fascination in his look and manner that drew me back towards him in spite of myself, and I resolved to go to him if it were merely to speak and see who he was. I came up to him and addressed him, but he was so intent on his book that, though I spoke, he lifted not his eyes. I looked on the book also, and still it seemed a Bible, having columns, chapters, and verses, but it was in a language of which I was wholly ignorant, and all intersected with red lines and verses. A sensation resembling a stroke of electricity came over me, on first casting my eyes on that mysterious book, and I stood motionless. He looked up, smiled, closed his book, and put it in his bosom. You seem strangely affected, dear sir, by looking at my book, said he mildly. In the name of God, what book is that? said I. Is it a Bible? It is my Bible, sir, said he. But I will cease reading it, for I am glad to see you. Pray, is not this a day for holy festivity with you? I stared in his face, but made no answer, for my senses were bewildered. Do you not know me? said he. You appear to be somehow at a loss. Had not you and I some sweet communion and fellowship yesterday? I-, I beg your pardon, sir, said I, but surely, if you are the young gentleman with whom I spent the hours yesterday, you have the chameleon art of changing your appearance. I never could have recognized you. My countenance changes with my studies and sensations, said he. It is a natural peculiarity in me, over which I have not full control. If I contemplate a man's features seriously, mine own gradually assume the very same appearance and a character. And what is more, by contemplating a face minutely, I not only attain the same likeness, but... With the likeness, I attain the very same ideas, as well as the same mode of arranging them, so that, you see, by looking at a person attentively, I by degrees assume his likeness, and by assuming his likeness, I attain to the possession of his most secret thoughts. This, I say, is a peculiarity in my nature, a gift of the God that made me. but. Whether or not given me for a blessing, he knows himself, and so do I. At all events, I have this privilege. I can never be mistaken of a character in whom I am interested. It is a rare qualification, replied I, and I would give worlds to possess it. Then, it appears that it is needless to dissemble with you. Since you can, at any time, extract our most secret thoughts from our bosoms, you already know my natural character. Yes, said he, and it is that which attaches me to you. By assuming your likeness yesterday, I became acquainted with your character, and was no less astonished at the profunity and range of your thoughts, than at the heroic magnanimity with which these were combined. And now, in addition to these, you are dedicated to the great work of the Lord, for which reasons I have resolved to attach myself as closely to you as possible, and to render you all the service of which my poor abilities are capable. I confess that I was greatly flattered by these compliments paid to my abilities by a youth of such superior qualifications. By one who, with a modesty and affability rare at his age, combined a height of genius and knowledge almost above human comprehension. Nevertheless, I began to assume a certain superiority of demeanor towards him, as judging it incumbent on me to do so in order to keep up his idea of my exalted character. We conversed again till the day was near a close, and the things that he strove most to inculcate on my mind were the infallibility of the elect and the preordination of all things that come to pass. I pretended to controvert the first of these for the purpose of showing him the extent of my argumentative powers. And said that, indubitably, there were degrees of sinning which would induce the Almighty to throw off the very elect. But behold, my hitherto humble and modest companion took up the argument with such warmth that he put me not only to silence, but to absolute shame. End of section 14.